Well, back in the, the 90s, when you guys were like, what, one, two, three, some of you, uh, and the Cowboys used to be good, which they're not anymore. That's a, a different sore subject. Anyways, there was a guy, there was an offensive lineman for the Dallas Cowboys. His name was Mark Tuanay. Mark Tuanay. And he was kind of an obscure guy, but he was on the Super Bowl teams. Dominant football player, was, was part of the, the dynasty there that the Cowboys had. And back in probably 2007, 2008, uh, I went to a, a, a banquet down in San Diego for the uh, Poinsettia Bowl that they hold down there. And this was an FCA banquet. So they, they had the two teams there. Clemson was one of them playing. I, I forget who the other one was, maybe Texas A&M. Anyways, they, they have this banquet for them. And all the athletes are there, the, the Christians that want to participate in this with FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And there's a speaker, and the, the speaker gave this message. Everything else were there. And out of the corner of my eye, I catch this guy, and he's a, a bigger guy, right? So he's a guy that looks like he could have been an offensive lineman. And uh, he's wearing a, a Cowboys jersey, which should have been my first clue, right? I mean, a, a, an actual player doesn't wear his own jersey. But he was wearing a Mark Tuna jersey. And I'm going, dude, that's obscure. Nobody buys a Mark Tuna jersey. That's got to be Mark Tuna. And he's wearing his jersey because this is an FCA event, and there's these college athletes there. Like, that's, that's one of the guys. That's one of the guys I used to watch back when I was growing up, watching the Cowboys win and not lose. But uh, so afterwards, I, I, I told my wife, it's like, I need to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go talk to him. I'm going to go say hi to him. So I walk up to this guy in the Mark Tuna jersey and I walk up to him. And I'm like, dude, I'm a huge Cowboys fan. And I just got to tell you that I loved watching you play when I was growing up. Would you be willing to take a picture with me? Guy was like, sure, right? Nice guy, whatever. So I stand next to him. He puts his arm around me. We, we take the picture, whatever, go back, sit down. And my family is like, are you sure that was Mark Tune? I'm like, dude, come on. Nobody has a Mark Tune jersey. That, and that, that guy looks clearly, he's played football. He, he, I mean, that, that was him, no doubt about it. Well, we're in the car on the way home and I pull out my phone because I started to have my own doubts. And I Googled Mark Tune and found out that he had died like 10 years prior to that event. So I don't know who that guy was, but he was kind enough not to just laugh at me when I went up and told him that I was a huge Cowboys fan and asked him to take a picture with me. And I'm sure I made his life after that, right? He's probably still telling the story like I'm telling the story. Probably one of my most embarrassing moments looking back at it, but it wasn't embarrassing at the time because I had no idea. But uh, I think, I don't know if I've laughed at myself harder than I did after I found out that uh, Mark Tune had died um, of a drug overdose too, which was not funny, uh, but uh, that was not him at that FCA event. All that to say, you know, sometimes people try to put themselves off as somebody that they're not. And this guy wasn't actually trying to be Mark Tune, he just had that jersey on. But I mis mis mistook him, is that a word? I made the mistake of thinking that he was Mark Tune. And I made the mistake of thinking that just because he kind of looked like Mark Tune and because he wore the, the jersey that said Tune on the back and had the number on it, that this guy was the real deal, that he was the real McCoy. Well, when it comes to the church, we've got a lot of people here that look the part and that wear the jersey, but may not be actually who they say they are. They may not be believers they may not be the real deal. Our text 
that we're going to look at tonight. It's one of the most controversial in the book of James, but it shouldn't come as a surprise to us. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been kind of tracking this argument that James has been making. Two weeks ago, James focused and zeroed in on this idea that we need to be not only hearers of God's word, but what? Doers of God's word. That we need to read God's word and then put it into action. That it's not meant just to make us smarter Christians, but it's meant to actually transform our lives, to change the way that we live when we read the Bible. And then last week, we zoomed in uh, more specifically on one of the issues that was a problem for the churches and the believers that James was writing to. One of those issues that they needed to be more active in doing rather than just hearing, and that was in showing partiality and favoritism. We're going to favor this person over that person because I like the way they dress more, or I like their job better, or I like that they're less socially awkward. And we talked about the the sin of partiality last week, that those judgments that we pass on people are wrong and that they're anti-gospel. And so when we come to this passage that we're in tonight, it's it's really the the culmination of where James has been going. And he's going to get into this idea of this concept that our faith should work, that our faith should work. See, this passage in James chapter 2, verses 14 through the end, verse 26, it's the key to the other two passages. Because it defines what the real deal looks like for Christianity. It makes sure that we separate the people who are showing up saying one thing and wearing the jersey from those that are the the actual authentic version of a believer, of a follower of Jesus Christ. And for some of you tonight, you're going to come face to face with a text that's going to make you uncomfortable. And you're going to look at this text and you're going to read this text just like we looked at the, the Bible as the mirror a couple weeks ago. And the the man that doesn't do what the Bible says walks away and just forgets what he looked like. Well, sometimes when we look into the mirror of God's word, we're not going to like what we see. And for some of you tonight, you may look into this text and not really like what you see. But I want to encourage you that that is actually a a good thing. And that's an evidence of God's grace in your life. Because he doesn't want you, if you're not part of the the real team, if you're just wearing the jersey and, and, and throwing the words out there saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you're not really part of the team. God doesn't want you to stay in that way. He wants to get you actually on the, the, the squad. He wants to make you part of the team. He wants to make you the real deal. And that's what this passage is about. It's about the relationship of faith and works. And really what James is going to say and what it boils down to is this. The faith that works to save you is a faith that works. The faith that works is a faith that works. Let's look at the passage. James chapter 2 verse 14. James says, what, is it, what good is it, my brothers, Christians? What good is it, fellow Christians, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, that faith without works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, 
Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Again, this is by no challenge. This is the most controversial passage in the book of James. And as I was reading that, as you were reading that, as your eyes were glancing on some of those things, you wanted to push back, I'm sure. There were some things that you read or that you heard in that text that you say, wait a minute, that's not right. I've heard exactly the opposite other places. And so when we come to this passage, it it makes sense that somebody like Martin Luther, who is one of the reformers, who is pushing back against the Catholic church that was preaching a works-based salvation. When he came to James chapter two, it makes sense that he said, you know what, I can't accept this because this seems to be teaching exactly what I don't agree with. Now, later in his life, Martin Luther came to understand what James was really driving at, what I hope to help us understand tonight as well, and he kind of altered his view. But initially, Martin Luther read this, and so many others have read this and said, well, wait a minute, James seems to be disagreeing with what Paul says. And if I'm going to believe one over the other, man, I'm going to believe Paul over James. Well, I don't think we have to choose one. I think they work together. And I think we'll see why as we study the passage. Verses 14 through 17, though, he starts out with these two questions. He says, what good is it? Fellow Christians, what good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith, in other words, would say, I'm a Christian, but does not have works. In other words, he's not bearing any fruit in his life. What good is that? Can that faith save him? And then he gives this example. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, he says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, the problem that James was addressing is that there were some that were apparently teaching and believing and, and, and professing that, you know what, faith and works, they're, they're two totally separate things. That all you need to be saved is just bare bones faith, nothing more. And if you never have any evidence of that faith at any point in time in your life, you know what? You're okay. You're you're good to go. Because salvation is simply belief, period, end of story. And they were teaching that and they were peddling that. And the, the believers that James was writing to and addressing, he's writing to them to help them understand that this is dangerous, that this is not okay. And he's writing to them and he, he says, look, the, this faith that doesn't work is not genuine faith at all. He's saying, can this faith save this person? And the implied answer there is is no. This is the type of person that you maybe think of that says, you know what, I'm a Christian, but then there's no evidence to back that up. There's no fruit in their life. You look at their life, and in fact, not only is there no positive fruit, but there's plenty of negative fruit in their life. There's plenty of negative uh, behavioral qualities and and qualifications. And and you look at them saying out of one side of their mouth, I'm a Christian, but then the rest of the time you're around them, you see quite the opposite. Maybe this person sleeps with his girlfriend openly and and doesn't, just doesn't care about it, doesn't think it's a big deal. Or maybe this person uses profanity all the time in their, their language and in their speech. Or maybe this person is known, they're, they're, a, they're just somebody you can't trust. They lie regularly about things. They don't read their Bible. Hey, did you do your, do your daily Bible reading this week? No, I, I, I didn't. And that's just kind of the consistent pattern in their life. They're like, I, I, they have no desire to be in God's word. This person doesn't pray. This person has no desire to tell other people about Jesus. But if somebody comes up to them and says, hey, are you a Christian? You know what they're gonna say? Oh, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. Yeah, I, I go to church, I'm, I'm a Christian. 
And see, their, their faith is in this profession that they've made. Their faith is in this one time that they walked an aisle, right? Or at a summer camp when they were growing up and they, they got caught up in the emotions of everything and they decided, yeah, I, my best friend's gonna give his life to Jesus, I'm gonna give my life to Jesus. You know, maybe they were even baptized. But there was never any genuine commitment to Christ and because there was never any genuine commitment to Christ, there's never really been any life change at all. And there were people, and there are still people today that say, you, you know what, I, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Yeah, sure, why not? I don't have anything against Jesus. I don't have anything against God. And you're looking at them and you're thinking to yourself, there's no way that you're a believer because the rest of your life doesn't back up what's coming out of your mouth. Your profession of faith. And James answers this question, does this faith work to save him? No. Why? Because the faith that works is faith that works. He gives that example. The person in need of food and clothing. And this person in response says, go, be warm and be filled. Without giving them anything to actually see that they're warm and filled. And James says, what good is that? Just by speaking the words, hey, go and be warm and, and be filled. Does that speak that into reality that, that they've done any good for that person in need? No. Well, just as those words are powerless, if, if there's nothing there to, to evidence that and, and there's no follow through, so too the, the words that say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I, I, I was baptized. That, that's, that's empty and, and powerless as well. Simply saying I'm a Christian because I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again doesn't make someone a Christian. And I know this is getting a little uncomfortable for us. I want to assure you before we go any further, that I 100% believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You cannot earn your salvation. It is completely 100% a gift of God to you. What I am saying is that the faith that saves, that faith that God gives you, is going to change you. And it is going to work itself out in your life. And it is going to show evidence of your relationship with Christ. Our first point tonight is this, flee the opposite. Flee from fraudulent faith. So Baptist, man, three Fs right there. The, the, the alliteration, is that what that is, alliteration? That's what that is, right? Flee from fraudulent faith. It can't save you, guys. If your whole confidence is this one time when I was younger, I remember I prayed a prayer or I was baptized or your whole confidence is I grew up going to church or your confidence is I feel like I'm a good person and I don't have anything against God. Guys, that's all built on a, a house of cards. It's fraudulent faith. It's not faith that will save you. It's like, do you guys remember back in, in kindergarten or preschool, the parachute in the classroom? You guys remember that? They'd, they'd bring it out and they'd like flop it up in the air and it was fun for whatever reason to run under the, the parachute and then it would fall down on top of you and it was the chaotic 15 seconds afterwards where eyes were gouged and everything else as everybody was screaming underneath the parachute. I, imagine though taking that parachute and going, yeah, I'm gonna go take this, I'm gonna go jump out of a plane with this thing. No, right? Yeah, you're shaking your head. Why wouldn't you jump out of the plane with Mrs. Smith's kindergarten classroom parachute? Because it's not meant for that, right? It's called a parachute, but it's not really a parachute. It's just a piece of fabric that's sewed together with nylon and, and things that, that will fray and will break under the intense pressure of jumping out of a plane. If you're gonna jump out of a plane with Mrs. Smith's parachute, you're gonna be a pancake. 
as flat as the parachute is when it comes down, right? It's, it's not meant to do the job. And if you put your confidence in that parachute, you're going to die. Well, guys, if you put your confidence in a fraudulent profession of faith in Christ, you're in just as much trouble as the guy who jumps out of a, a, an airplane with Mrs. Smith's parachute. You're in just as much trouble. James says this, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, verse 17, is, what's that next word? Dead. Faith without works is dead. I said faith that works, works. Another way to put that the opposite is this. Faith that doesn't work, doesn't work. You can't trust it. You can't put your eggs in the basket of a profession, of a mere intellectual exercise of going, well, I can agree with this stuff, and so I guess there you go. I'm saved. If you're saying you're a Christian because you've believed or because you've come to church or because you've prayed a prayer or because you've walked an aisle, but your life doesn't look any different from the life of any of your non-Christian friends, guys, I, I just want to challenge you that you've got reason to be concerned about whether or not you're genuinely saved. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If you were at the Fresh Retreat, we covered this passage. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. He's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. If the old is still here and there's not much new, you're not a new creation. Or what we've covered recently over the summer from Romans chapter 6. When Paul says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, no, by no means. Why? Because how can we who died to sin still live in it? So if you are still living in sin, then the conclusion is you have not actually died to sin because you've actually not been united with Christ in a death like his. The profession may be there, but the, the genuine, the real deal. I mean, you've got the jersey. You've got the name on the back of the jersey. And some poor sap like me might come along and think that you're the real deal. But the reality is you're not the real deal. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. Listen to the change that Paul describes here that takes place at salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 7. He says, and you were dead and your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, that's who you are before Christ. It's not a great picture, right? It's a, it's a bad scene. But then verse four kicks in. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Did you see the change that took place? Two, one through three, you're dead in your sins. But two, four, but God did what? Made you alive. Alive in Christ Jesus. Do you see the radical transformation? I mean, there's not much of a greater contrast that we can think of than death and life is there. 
I've done funerals and I've been there when my children are born. And I can tell you, there are two totally different experiences and feelings that happen when you stand in front of a dead body and when you see a baby born. And Paul understands that. Nobody goes to a funeral and mistakes that dead body for a new child, do they? Nobody goes to a nursery and looks at a brand new baby and says, man, that baby looks like death. Because there's a stark, marked difference between death and life. And all I'm saying is if, in your profession of saying, I'm a believer, there's not that difference, then there's a problem. There's no version of the walking dead when it comes to Christianity. There are no spiritual zombies. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation and you are alive. The old is gone and the new is here. Saving faith is a transforming faith. The faith that works is a faith that works. If you don't see it, you don't have it. Some may still object and push back on that and they did with James too and he understands that and so he answers their objection, anticipates their objection just like a good pastor should in James chapter two, verse 18. But he says, but someone will say, you're gonna push back. In other words, you have faith and I have works. In other words, see, there's the dichotomy. Some are still gonna push back at James and be like, James, stop with the works already, dude. You've got faith. Somebody over here says they've got faith and they have works. You know, we're, we're good. Just, just chill, just leave us alone. Faith is the important thing. James says, show me your faith without works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. James's response is, it's simple and yet profound. Somebody who says they're a Christian and they want to argue with you, right? And they want to push back at you. And James says, show me your faith. You tell me you're a believer. Where's the evidence of that? I'll give you evidence because I'm going to testify to how God has transformed my life and how my life is different than what it once was. My evidence is not boasting in me, not saying, look at all how great I am and everything that I've done. No, it's look at how God has transformed my life. That's my evidence that God has saved me. Maybe that person who says, you know what, I, I've got my faith and that's all I need, they're gonna appeal to their doctrine, right? That's the logical place that they're gonna go. Well, but I believe, I believe that God is real. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe these things. I believe that the Bible is God's word. James lowers the boom on those that trust in doctrine in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Put your eyes on verse 19 because this is huge. He says, you believe that God is one. In other words, you've got your doctrine in order. Your doctrinal ducks are lined up. You believe that God is one. Great. Congratulations is basically what James is saying. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Even the demons have a sound theology, but nobody's going to argue that the demons are saved. So if your confidence is in your doctrine, you've got as much confidence in being saved as the demons do. If your confidence is in the fact that you agree that God is one and that Jesus is the son of God and that he died on the cross for sins and that he rose from the dead and that there's heaven and hell and that only those that believe in Jesus are going to go to heaven. If, if your confidence stops at the doctrinal level, you've got no more reason to trust that you will be in eternity with God than the demons do. That's point number two for you tonight. Distinguish your faith from the doctrine of demons. Demons. 
distinguish your faith from the doctrine of demons. Maybe you're thinking, you know what? Did the, doc- did the demons really have good doctrine? Did they? Luke's gospel. Here's one example. There's, there's others. But Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 4, verse 34. The legion of demons here, right? Luke chapter 4, verse 34. Ha, they say, the demons speaking, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's an amazing confession. It is one of the most doctrinal, theologically sound confessions of faith that we find in the Gospels. And it comes out of the mouth of a demon, a fallen angel. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In fact, Peter says the same thing. John chapter six. John chapter six, Jesus, after many had left him because his teaching was difficult to to accept, Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, hey, do you guys want to leave me too? Are you guys going to bail? And Simon Peter speaks up and he answers Jesus and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? He says, you have the words of, holy, of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know, here it is, that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter's great confession of faith is the same confession of faith as the demon in Luke chapter four. So just because you've got sound doctrine doesn't mean that you're saved. Your sound doctrine cannot save you. You have to have more than sound doctrine. You've got to have more than the head knowledge. And I know that's a battle to try to define what that looks like, but I want to try to do it this way for you. And I want to do it by asking you a question. Do you want God or do you want the benefits of God? Because the difference is a word that we refer to and call relationship. Do you want God which involves a relationship with him. That your your knowledge about him drives an actual love of him, a relationship with him, that you want to pray to him, that it's natural for you to, to go to the Lord in prayer. You want to be in God's word because you want to hear from him. You want to be around God's people because they love him too. You want to sing the songs of praise to God because it's, it's music that sets your mind on the thoughts of God. You've got a relationship with God. Or... Do you want the benefits of God? You want the get out of hell free card. You want to feel better about yourself. You want to have things go okay at home, for those of you with Christian parents at home at least. And so you don't want to rock the boat too much, so you're going to just play the game as long as you have to play the game. The difference is, is there, and it's a, a major one. Think about your relationship with your best friend your relationship with your best friend. If you say, you know what, my best friend is great. I love my best friend. And I was to say to you, really? Why? How how do you love your best friend? You'd be able to tell me in the drop of a hat all the different ways that you love your best friend. You love talking with them. You love hanging out with them. You love going to see a movie with them. You love texting. You love, uh, you know, going shopping with them. Whatever it may be. You love that they're always there for you. I mean, you're going to be able to tell me this is how great my 
relationship with my best friend is. Here's all the evidences of why we've got a great relationship. How about if I asked you, what are the evidences that you've got a great relationship with God? How would you answer that? Would it come as naturally as your answer to how you know that you've got a great relationship with your best friend? It should. Again, James is driving at the fact that we need to be doers of the word and not hearers only, that, that our faith needs to work. Again, the faith is driving the works. It's not being created by the works, okay? We need to get that right. It's faith first, and, but that, that faith works. And so your daily Bible reading, right? What are you doing with that? The difference between relationship and I just want the benefits or I just want the knowledge or the doctrine. The, the knowledge and doctrine and benefits just say, well, a check box is done. I can wait until tomorrow to, to get back into the Bible again. The relationship says, wow, what do I need to do in response to what I just read? How does it need to change me? What truths do I find about God in what I just read? How does this make me want to worship God more? Thank God. Praise God. How can I use the verses that I just read to maybe encourage somebody else? Or maybe you listen to a sermon, like Pastor John's sermon that he just preached this morning, which was nails, right? And you hear that, and you hear the challenge that we need to be on the, 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 the team of believers that are going out to reach the lost for Christ. What do you do with that sermon? Do you just kind of go, well, that was a nice sermon, and you see Pastor John, and you say, hey, Pastor John, great sermon, and that's it? Or do you sit there and do you start thinking about how God wants to use that sermon in your life to transform you, to change you? Doctrine can't be an end in and of itself. There's plenty of people in hell who have a sound doctrine. There are, hell is chock full with people with a theology that would rival any of ours who know the books of the Bible backwards and forwards, who read books on theology, who studied Greek and Hebrew, but they never had that relationship with God. They trusted in their doctrine. Coming to California, one of the adjustments I had to make was that people don't know how to merge onto freeways here. They just don't. In Texas, you've got on-ramps, right? And the on-ramps are nice and long and you get up to speed and you get on the road. People here like crawl onto the freeway. It's like, what are you doing? It's the skinny one on the left. Push it down, go faster, get over. But we all know, right, that when we're on the on-ramp, we're not actually on the freeway yet, are we? Guys, doctrine is the on-ramp to faith. And if your confidence is just in your doctrine, you're not on the freeway. You're not there yet. It may be a, a servant to get you there, but it's like you just parking on the freeway and rolling your windows down, or on the on-ramp and rolling your windows down and being like, man, this is awesome. I love driving on the highway. And everybody's laying on their horns going, dude, get out of the way. Because you're not actually there. James drives home his point by appealing to one of the greatest men in the Bible. In fact, he's writing to a Jewish audience. And so when he goes on from here and he mentions this next person's name, their ears would have immediately perked up even more than they already were. Because he mentions the name Abraham. He says, do you want to be shown, verse 20, you foolish person, 
that faith apart from works is useless. Do you want me to evidence this, prove this to you even more, he's asking. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So again, they hear Abraham, boom, their antennas go up. And they're listening to James and they're thinking to themselves and Luther listened to James and thought to himself, wait a minute, Paul wrote an entire chapter in Romans chapter four all about how Abraham was not justified by works but by faith. And now James, you're telling me, no, 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 Abraham was justified by works and not by faith alone. Do you see the problem with that? Do you see why this... makes some people want to pull their hair out and go, what, who am I supposed to believe? Paul wrote so many books. James was the half-brother of Jesus. They're both inspired. What, what do I do, right? Well, guys, they're not arguing against each other. They're coming at two different sides of the coin that is justification, okay? There's two ways to understand justification. Number one, the first way is forensic, okay? Courtroom, declared righteous, not Guilty. Who is writing about forensic justification, do you think? James or Paul? Paul, yes. That we are declared righteous in Christ by faith alone. That nothing we do merits our innocence before God, right? That, that, that's the bad news side of the gospel, that we can't do anything to appease God's wrath against us. But through faith... In Jesus Christ and what he did for us, we can be declared righteous, okay? So Paul is arguing justification in the, the terms of the courtroom, okay? The judge banging the, guilt, the, the, the gavel and saying not just not guilty, but innocent in Christ, okay? And Paul says that's not by works, that's by faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, so that no one can boast, Right? James, on the other hand, is looking at the other definition of justified, which is that concept of being vindicated, being shown right, right? You think of, well, why does this stupid small little debate thing matter that you're having with this person over here? Because I want to be justified in my argument. What do you mean there? You want to be declared innocent? No. You mean you want to be shown to be right, shown to be true, right? You want to be vindicated in that. And so that's where James is coming at. And I'm going to, I'm going to unpack that a little bit more for you. But I want you to think there of not the, the judge banging the gavel and declaring you innocent. I want you to think there of the Bema seat of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Bema seat is, is a, a Greek word and it's the judgment seat of Christ. It's where Jesus will sit and where believers will come and stand before him and where we will receive what is due, the rewards for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. So there will be the, 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 the evil things, the sins in our lives, and those things will be burned up in, in the fire. Those like dross in the refining process, right? And the, we'll, we'll receive no reward at all. We will forfeit reward for the sins in our lives. But on the other hand, we will receive the the things for the good things we've done in the body, our works that we're talking about here. There we're going to receive the rewards that we're going to receive from Jesus Christ. 
This is the justification that James is talking about. That moment where you don't hear not guilty, innocent, because you've already heard that through faith in Jesus Christ. But that moment where you hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Do y'all see the difference between those two? What I'm talking about there? Some feedback, east, west, up, north, south. Okay, thank you. That was for you, Nathan. There's, there's those two meanings. And so what we're talking about here, James and Paul are not arguing against each other. They're just arguing the opposite sides of the coin of justification. One is looking at your moment of conversion. Paul is and saying, you are justified by faith alone in Christ alone with no work so that no one can boast. And we would say, yes. But then James is saying, but there's a future justification, a vindication of your life where you will hear Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that is coming and that is contingent upon, so to speak, or has something to do with your works. The one faith that saves produces the faith that vindicates through the works. Third point tonight is this, live for well done. Live for well done done, the well done. Live for the well done. The well done being Christ saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. There was a parable that Jesus told that I think helps us understand this. The parable that Jesus told is the parable of the talents. Y'all remember this one? He gathers the, the, the master getting ready to go on a long journey, gathers his servants together, and he gives his servants money. He entrusts some of his estate, some of his finances to these servants. And he says, hey, I'm going away. I want you to take what I've been trusting to you and I want you to, to use it wisely. And the master goes away and he's gone for a time and, and some of the servants take the money and they go out and they invest it wisely and they get a return on their investment so they, they gain more money for their master and their master comes back, right? And when he comes back, he comes back to the servants and he brings them in and he calls them to account and he begins to go through the, the line and the first one says, well, you gave me four and I returned eight to you. And the other one says, well, you gave me two and I, I brought you four. And then he gets to the third one and the third one says, well, I didn't actually do anything with what you gave me because I know that you're a harsh master and I was afraid that I might just lose it all. So I just buried it. So here you have back what you originally gave me. And the master looks at him and he goes, you missed it completely. You missed it completely. The others were vindicated. They were justified in the eyes of the master. Why? Because they did what they were supposed to do with what they had been given. This third slave though, he was condemned by the master. Why? Because he failed to do what he was supposed to do with what the master had given to him. That's the, the, the rub, the difference. James 2.22, James says, you see that faith, speaking of Abraham, faith was acting with his works and faith was completed by his works. Abraham was vindicated, shown that his faith was the real deal is what we're talking about. His faith was vindicated when he offered up Isaac on the altar. When he was willing to show the Lord, okay, there's nothing, God, that I'm gonna hold back from you. Here's everything. Isaac is my everything and here he is and I will give him to you. He was vindicated. He was not saved through offering Isaac, but his faith that he previously had was shown to be the real deal when he was willing to bring Isaac and put him on the altar. 
Your faith will be vindicated, vindicated when you stand before Christ on that last day at the judgment seat of Christ and you hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. It will be at that moment that your faith is shown to be the real deal. And that's what he means when he says that your faith is completed by your works. Not that there's something lacking in your faith that saves you, but that your faith will be brought to its full end, its intended goal by your works. That's what he means by it's completed by your works. That that day that you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant, that is that moment where you can know for sure that you are vindicated, that you are justified by your faith with your works. Faith working with works. He also gives the example there of Rahab. That her works of taking the spies in and then sending them out by another way, that was the vindication of her trust in God. He was evidencing it. He was showing it. Show me your faith by my, I will show you my faith by my works, James said. And now he's giving an example. He's saying Abraham showed his faith by his works. Rahab showed her faith by her works. So you see that it's faith and works working together. In fact, that's what he says, James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Or the faith that is alone. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So, uh, Rich Mullins, any of you guys even register the name Rich Mullins? Probably not. He's a Christian artist in the 80s and 90s. Uh, died tragically, but he wrote a song uh, called, I think it was called Faith. Anyways, um, one of the lines in the, the song says this, a faith without works just doesn't make sense. He says this, it's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. You can think about that for a second. Screen door on a submarine is not a lot of good to anybody, is it? Nobody's gonna be 2,000 yards underwater and be like, yeah, let's open up the, the door and get some fresh water in here, right? It's, it's pointless, it's useless. It's like the G in lasagna. It doesn't make any sense. Why is it there? But the, guys, that's, that's like what it is when we say, hey, I, I believe in Jesus, but there's no life change. If there's no life change, you don't actually believe in Jesus. You may believe in the doctrine. You may like the benefits. But that true commitment to Christ, that relationship with God that says, change me, transform me, make me a new creation in Christ. It's not there. You're like that guy at that banquet that's wearing the jersey, causing some poor unsuspecting college student to get all excited because you're Mark Tuanay. No, I mean, you've got the jersey on, you've got the name on. You may look the part hang around other people that are the real deal. But you're not the real deal. I know this sounds a lot like salvation by works. And I, I get that. But guys, if, if you're there, you, you understand the difference that I'm driving at. It's not salvation by works. 
It's salvation by faith. But the faith that works for salvation is a faith that works. And the faith that doesn't work, doesn't work. Let's pray. God, this is hard. Hard to wrap our minds around. To understand all the ins and outs of this argument that James makes here. And yet I'm so thankful that he makes it. God, it's encouraging. And we know that the faith that saves us, that changes us, that makes us a new creation in Christ is a faith that you give us. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we, we do something for. But God, as we've seen tonight in the pages of scripture, that the, the descriptions of what happens when we are saved are so clear that we are transferred from death to life, that we become a new creation, that we have died to sin so that we might no longer live in it, Lord, so that we can't sit here and, and, and expect to be able to say, yes, I'm saved, and there's no evidence of it anywhere in our lives and expect that that is something that is, is genuine. It's, it's, it's fraudulent, as we talked about. Lord, I, I pray that you would use this in pending this coming up small group time to allow our students to be transparent with one another, with their leaders, about where they're at. And Lord, I, I pray that you would, even with, with some who may need it tonight, that you would grant that, that saving faith, that faith that truly does change and transform, that faith that truly does work. Pray that you would do that even tonight. During this small group time, Lord, we, we pray that they'd be effective and fruitful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.